By now, you must have guessed that this is Ireland, the Emerald Isle. It really is amazing how many Irish women makers are out there. Little ballerinas flit like butterflies across the floor of their classroom. But I prefer to have my own narrative of what I think they're asking me. I'm a bit of a rebel in the sense of what is a contemporary choreographer? Dancers have to use their heads as well as their feet. Art, social responsibility, as you well know, because we do come from a very kind of literary narrative way of seeing Dancers things here. Over three episodes, Zoe Ashbrown and me, your host, Emma Lister, will be talking to women who are dance makers in Ireland about their work, early inspiration and journey to positions of leadership. In a time when we are consistently hearing of the gap between men's opportunities and women's in such roles, why are there so many makers coming out of this small country? Is Ireland ahead of the curve? Think of this not so much as a series of interviews, but as a roundtable, a virtual roundtable on Irish women making dance. Here's our first episode. Who was Countess Markovich and what does she have to do with dance in Ireland? Hi, listeners. Welcome to our new series, Irish Women Making Dance. Not for the first time, I'm going to ask Zoe Ash-Brown, my co-host, to introduce herself. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me back again. (laughs) Um, So my name is Zoe Ash-Brown. I am a dance artist from Dublin and I am currently based in Belgium with the Opera Ballet of Flanders. I'm a dancer there, but I also choreograph and primarily share my work at home in Ireland. This series is centered on Irish women, but I think it's good to note here that we're talking about topics and themes that come up a lot when we discuss dance, creativity, and, you know, all women. So it's it's relevant to you if you're listening, even if you're not Irish. But why Ireland? Well, for first things, Zoe and I are both Irish. Zoe is a Dubliner who's worked in Ireland a lot, and though she's been in the UK and continental Europe for much of her career, she still sounds Irish. I know I don't sound Irish, but I have grandparents from there, and I've worked with the National Ballet of Ireland on and off since 2002. That's where I met Zoe. Mm -hmm. And post-Brexit, I got my Irish passport, which I'm very proud of. And I am actually very proud to be supported by the Markovich Award. So this project is actually supported by this award, and I will explain it as briefly as I can. So the Markovich Award is administered by the Arts Council of Ireland, but also the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gale Talks, Sport and Media, which is quite unique that it's administered by both departments. Uh, Gale Talks? Yeah, right. For anyone who isn't Irish, the Gaeltacht is actually the regions of Ireland where Irish is still the primary language. Um, mm. So it's quite it's quite rare. So it's, um you know, places like Donegal and over the west of Ireland, like Connemara and down in um, West Muscari and other places like that. But it's primarily in the west of Ireland. It is to honour Countess Markovich. So she was actually an artist herself, but she was also the first woman to be elected into Parliament and appointed to Cabinet. I'm going to allow an expert to talk about more about her later in the pod. But the award itself is to provide support for artists of all backgrounds and genres to develop their practice and to develop new work that reflects on the role of women in the period covered by the decade of centenaries 2012 to 2023 and beyond, which is where this pod is coming from. Yeah, actually, one of the first things that uh, you found after getting the award and we started doing some research was that in 2020, over 80% of the Irish Arts Council Dance Bursary awardees uh, were women. 
Uh, and that's super interesting. And it's something we're going to be getting into throughout this podcast as there's been a lot of dialogue recently about how the majority of choreographers working out there are cisgender men. Um, to be fair, I think the dialogue has always been going on, but maybe it's just in the headlines a bit more now. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And for context, just to let our listeners know what a dance bursary is, it's actually for um, an artist to to create on mm-hmm. an idea. So it, it buys you time to develop your 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 choreographic mm-hmm. voice if it's in dance for instance so it gives you gives you time to develop an idea so really we're talking the infancy stages maybe that's uh, talking to a writer or a spoken word artist or a musician or you want to work with four dancers in a studio because you want to develop a theme eventually mm-hmm. for stage so we're talking yeah. really grassroots ideas that's what a dance bursary is for um, and then you contrast that with um, a great dance data project stat that I'm about to quote. So thank you very much, DDP, for that. That it's two thirds of resident choreographers in the USA and mainland Europe are cisgender men. And for anyone that doesn't know what a resident choreographer is, it's someone that is being commissioned by a house. So you could say a big ballet company or a big full-time contemporary dance company, something, you know, up in the fine arts. And they have one person in particular that they are working with mm-hmm. to create new new works and also have their existing work in the repertoire so it's a really coveted position it's really at the top of the you know the totem pole it's it's lucrative it's high profile and it's interesting that two-thirds are men worldwide and then we have this kind of polarizing statistic at home yeah yeah i think there's a lot of layers there to get into in terms of um, nurturing young talent versus established artists and the various um inequities throughout the dance world. So we will definitely be getting into Mm -hmm. that. Um, But we also wanted to bring in some experts. And I think you've got the perfect person to talk to about Dance Bursary Award winners. So we decided to speak to Lisa McLaughlin, Head of Dance at Arts Council Ireland, about this phenomenon. And she said that they are definitely supporting more female artists and female identifying artists than male with bursaries. However, once you look into strategic funding, the balance is much more even. So the higher up the food chain you go, the more men there are. So in strategically funded companies in Ireland, um, of which there are about 10, uh, you have, for example, Dublin Dance Festival and the current director is female. That's very recent. Uh, Ballet Ireland, again, the director um, is female. Liz Reg Company, obviously. Um, Irish Modern Dance Theatre is a male director, John Scott. Um, also, Cush Came Dance Theatre, a male director. And uh, United Fall, which is um, Emma Martin, obviously female. So the list goes on. But then there are resource organisations, um, main resource organisation being Arts Council Ireland. Uh, that was a male director, but now it's female. So Lisa's role as head of dance has flipped around recently um, because it was a man before her. So there's definitely been um, a seismic change in terms of gender balance, especially at directorial level. Uh, it's now much more representative because in terms of actual participation in dance, it, it is overwhelmingly female. So we need to give a little bit of context here, a snapshot of the place we're talking about. Irish listeners, I hope you don't get bored, but there may be some stuff here that you didn't know. Actually, I didn't know them either until Emma pointed them out. Thank you, Emma. (laughs) Especially for our younger listeners, this will be interesting, I promise. Yeah, I'm a a big uh, history nerd, so I find all this stuff fascinating. And I always think it's important to think in terms of context when we're getting into meaty topics, as we will. 
Okay, so when I think of Ireland, I think of green, the Emerald Isle, all that twinkly music and actually it's green because the average numbers of wet days can be up to 225 a year Irish people will know that is not an exaggeration so the Emerald Isle that is exactly what it is Um, but Ireland is an island and its geographic isolation has helped it to develop a rich heritage of culture and tradition that was linked initially to the Gaelic language I also think of leprechauns and St. Patrick's Day and <laughs> Enya and Riverdance and Guinness, which is good. Uh, all things, yes, I think of when I think of Ireland. Absolutely. And pretty well known too are concerns like emigration, cultural and political identity and relations with Northern Ireland, which remains part of the United Kingdom. So in a nutshell, giving you a bit of history, from the 17th century, Ireland effectively became an English colony. There were people who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom and people who didn't. There were various uprisings, most famously the Easter Rising. Here we go with the Irish, Uri Amach nice. And I have to thank Dermot Amara for uh, helping me with that pronunciation because I've wiped Irish from my memory. Um, so Uri Amach of 1916, which saw Irish nationalists, including many women, by the way, Woo. occupy a number of important buildings in Dublin. Fighting ensued for six days and though ultimately the British suppressed the rebels, it was an event that turned public opinion towards nationalism. In 1949, the southern portion of Ireland formally left the Commonwealth and became the Republic of Ireland. And Ireland became a member of the EU in 1973. And another fun fact, 40 million Americans traced their ancestry to Ireland as a result of various exodus and because Irish people are actual pigs. 40 million? How many actual Irish people are there? Like five? <laughs> but that's me. <laughs> that's, that how, that's, that's how I got my, that's how I got my, my passport, Zoe, so don't knock it. Oh, okay. <laughs> as do millions of others throughout the world, clearly. Um, there have been several mass migrations out of Ireland. However, in terms of ethnic diversity within the country, over 90% of the population described themselves as white Irish or white other in the 2016 census. I've covered healthcare in a previous episode of this podcast. The episode was called Dancers in the Balance. You can check that out if you want. But in a nutshell, health examinations, child welfare clinics are all available without charge. Everything else is means tested. There are loads of famous Irish people in the arts and culture too, mostly in literature, drama. So William Butler Yeats, Seamus Heaney, James Joyce, George Bernard Shaw, Samuel Beckett, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, so far that is a bunch of dudes. But we also have Iris Murdoch, Sally Rooney. And in music we have U2, The Chorus, The Cranberries, Sinead O'Connor. That's better. Yeah. And in cinema you've got Jim Sheridan and Neil Jordan, as well as actors Gabriel Byrne, Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson and his son... Donal Gleeson, Richard Harris, who was the first Dumbledore, Pierce Brosnan, 007, and of course, Sir Ronan. Phew. For a population of just over 5 million, that's actually a lot of successful people in the arts. What about dance? Renewed interest in traditional Irish dancing in the 1990s led to the creation of Riverdance, which I'm sure everyone has heard of. In terms of ballet contemporary dance, there are actually no full-time companies in Ireland. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> so it's, what, it's terrible. One of the only, if not the only country in the EU that doesn't. So what is the impact of that? And I think that's what we're going to be talking about a lot on this pod. Yeah, that certainly came up a lot in uh, almost all of our interviews, how the lack of a permanent company, which I guess you could define in a lot of different ways, but 
you know, to me, it means you've got consistent funding, you've got consistent work for choreographers, for dancers, for um, any kind of artist who might come in and out of um, a building, even a building associated with a dance company, mm -hmm. some kind of a residency, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to define it. But if you think of any, any capital city in Europe, and well, you know, m most of the global north, they're all going to have what we we would recognize as a permanent company and that is missing in Ireland. So what does that mean in terms of nurturing talent? Um, certainly there is a lot of talented dancers coming in and out of Ireland. Um, obviously I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the National Ballet of Ireland, uh, whose director is a woman, Anne Marr. We call it Ballet Ireland, sometimes for shorthand. It, it's been going for over 25 years and there's been, um, you know, a great many really talented choreographers and dancers who have worked there, um, the, albeit they are all freelance. And it's not just the National Ballet of Ireland. It's also people like Liz Roach Dance, who mm -hmm. we're going to be talking to later on on the pod. You know, that company was founded in 1999, originally called Rex Levitates, and they've had their work seen all over the world, award-winning contemporary dance work. Um, you've also got Irish Modern Dance Theatre, founded by John Scott in 1991, and they're very unique because they work alongside with professional dance artists. They work as well with people like torture survivors and Middle Eastern refugees, and, you know, there's a really unique voice to, to that company. And then you have people like you know, Kush came dance. It's the Irish word for footsteps. And it's founded by David Bulger 25 years ago. And again, a vibrant contemporary dance group that is touring work all over the world. And so you have these these troops, these ensembles that are really making waves nationally and internationally and creating um, uh, an identity in Ireland. But the fact that no one mm. the fact that no one can just think strategically and just think about the work mm as opposed to always putting their name in the hats for funding. It's a, it's a tough old game. It's a tough old game to feel like you're starting again and yeah, again and again. Yeah. So when we're talking about women in Ireland, we need to talk about women's rights. And we're going to be speaking in binary terms here because most of recorded history is in such terms. Ireland is increasingly opening its heart and mind to the LGBTQ plus community. Same-sex marriage passed with an overwhelming support in a referendum in 2015. So I don't want to ignore the non-binary or trans women, uh, their presence in Ireland, but, you know, it's a pretty Roman Catholic country. 80% of the population are Roman Catholic. And as we'll see with just plain old women's rights, it has been a slow moving process. Here's a sobering example for everyone. In 1979, the Health Family Planning Act finally allowed the sale of contraceptives in Ireland upon presentation of a prescription. You what? So mm -hmm. pre-1979, you couldn't buy like condoms or like you couldn't get the pill, nothing, anywhere. No, absolutely not. They were illegal. I mean, after 1979, you still needed a prescription. Imagine, it went through several phases of easing in the 80s, but eventually in the early 90s, the government allowed the sale of contraceptives in Ireland without prescription. The mind reels. I, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> it, it's just, it's so interesting. Uh, and here's where I think context is really important because um, 
you know, in your in your young girlhood and some of the people who will be speaking to who are a slightly older generation, you know, a lot of their formative years, they're living in a country um, that is super Roman Catholic where you cannot buy contraceptives or, or, or get them unless you're married. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a load of other quite repressive laws that were still in place for women to do with being like the property of your husband, like just the way that would form your mind, even though, you know, things were getting more progressive and into the knots. Uh, Yeah, I think this is all uh, really important to note. Yeah, these are all holding hands. And here's here's the next biggie. Um, So with contraceptives not readily available, it will not surprise you to hear that abortion was effectively banned until 2018 when the Eighth Amendment was repealed by a referendum. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you don't want to, yeah. I don't, I don't know, even know how to make a segue out of that. <laughs> no, it's crazy. So let's get to Constance Markovich. Listeners, are you still with us? Of course they are. What are you talking about? Our listeners are super smart and they don't need a musical comedy break or anything like that. Mainstream Irish politics at the beginning of the 20th century was largely hostile to women's suffrage. In many respects, nationalism took precedence over feminism. But of course, pre-independence, we were dependent on the British Parliament to grant Irish women the vote. And in 1918, it did, but with restrictions. Yeah, the Representation of the People Act of 1918 gave a limited cohort of women the right to vote in parliamentary elections for the first time. Basically, women over the age of 30 could vote if they were university graduates, if they were householders, meaning that they were on some kind of local government register, or if they were the wives of householders. The consequences of this were as follows. Subwomen were just still defined in terms of their husbands. So why is this bursary named after Constance Markovich? Certainly, she was a fascinating character that continues to capture the public's imagination. Notably, she was a suffragist, an Irish nationalist. She was involved in the Easter Rising and imprisoned for it by the British. Uh, But she was then the first woman elected to Parliament in 1918, uh, though she famously refused to take her seat in Westminster. And I think that political role is probably what she's best known for. But, you know, she was also a trained artist and she worked as an actor. Lisa McLaughlin, head of dance from Arts Council Ireland, who we uh, spoke to for this episode, um, also has some insights into why this particular arts uh, bursary award is in Constance Markovich's name. Yes, she said to us that she's a figure that represents an iconic potential of Irish femininity that dates back to such a long time before there was a larger feminist movement in Ireland. She points to ideological, cultural nationalism that went on in Ireland after the Second World War under Eamon de Valera as Taoiseach or Prime Minister and the Catholic Church where all of a sudden dance was this pariah and traditional dance was foregrounded. So Markovich predates that. So perhaps it's more what she represents than her involvement in the arts because she was primarily involved in politics and activism. Um, In any case, Markovich would have considered herself a feminist and the award supports mainly women in their artistic endeavours. Yeah, she, Markovich, really was an interesting, multi-dimensional woman. Um, if you want to learn more about her, we'll give you a link in the show notes to an online lecture about her, something to take us beyond the, you know, bullet point representation she has in popular culture now. 
Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the piece. And um, you are actually going to make a performance piece from this award, from these chats that we've had um, from from all of our wonderful makers. So tell me a bit about that. Well, we are almost completed with our interviews with women at this point because we're editing things and you know, the podcast isn't happening chronologically, of course, but we've had four really interesting conversations so far. And my idea originally was that I would take themes that were kind of holding hands within the interviews and use them as a stimulus to make work. And the things that are coming up for me at the moment are definitely motherhood and the stigmatization of being a mother and a maker or a performer and all that comes with that, the mind, the body, the connection. Um, so I think that's definitely going to be a really interesting thing to talk about because where I'm at now with it is that, you know, you can, yeah, you can have a baby while you're still dancing, but, uh, you know, how long is it going to take for you to snap back and, uh, you know, be either throwing yourself on the floor or executing a, a, a variation perfectly so people can say, wow, and you know, she's a mom and you mom, you know, and it's like, well, maybe, maybe that doesn't have to be the narrative, you know, um, all the time although people you know if you're smashing it and uh you know good for you also like it's not just talking about the negative it's just that it's a really wide discussion and i think it's really interesting just to hear the moms um of this podcast to- talk about it you know there's i mean there oh, you you get so much advice when i'm a mom you get so much <laughs> advice uh as a mother and um there are a billion ways to be a mom so there should be like a billion ways to come back to dance if that's mm-hmm. what you choose and like you said I think a lot of our interviewees are finding some um, real interesting positives some unexpected things and obviously you know pitfalls as well and um, as I'm sure everyone can imagine being such a physical discipline but uh, yeah I think that's I really look forward to seeing what you do with all that information thank you some different representations I'm actually talking to my friend at the moment who is heavily pregnant and she's a powerhouse Nancy Osbodeston, if anyone knows her. And um, she and I are going to work together and it will hopefully be her first ever performance back on stage. Um, actually, oh, wow. in a gala for Maggie Donlin, who's on the podcast. Talk about Amazing. Full Circles. Um, full Circle. Yeah, a charity gala. And uh, I was talking to her about, you know, let's make a a, a post-baby solo, you know. And yeah. eventually, once I got my ideas out, she said to me, are you going to make an Isadora Duncan solo for me? <laughs> <laughs> you watching her behind with a scarf, with a scarf um, and a flowing yeah, gown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that she cradles. Um, no, but I think yeah. So that'll be really, really exciting. Um, but how interesting in to do? How interesting? Sorry, how interesting to do that rather mm-hmm. than like okay, well, what roles within the rep can I do? Uh, exactly. You know, what's safe for me to do? What What am I so called like you know fit enough to do? Um, what you're doing is making something around this like new wonderful um, version of Body. Nancy. Yeah, amazing. Mm, exactly. Yeah, it's gonna be really exciting. Cool. Um, it'll be so boring now. If she just snaps back. <laughs> just put your point shoes on. Oh God. Um, so we're gonna be working on that. But um, I I also want to make a, an all female work about the other things that that have come up. So um, I think a lot of really interesting things have come up you know how being a woman has affected people's work and their dance language has come up which i thought was really really Mm. interesting Mm. um the the motivation behind making Mm. the inevitable 
misconceptions about being a woman and being a maker. Um, the really kind of, uh, you know, something really obvious like doors not being open for you because, purely because you are a woman. Yeah, and the I mean, glass I, ceiling. I thought that, that mm-hmm. The glass ceiling, exactly. And I thought that might be really, uh, might be too obvious to work with. But then when you hear people actually talking about their lived experience, you think, well, it would also just be ridiculous not to include it. So that's where we're at so far. And I just, I'm really excited to hear what uh, our younger makers have to say as well, because I'm sure that's going to be a different experience, a different lens, different perspective. And it's hopefully going to be very rich and uh, also fun to make. I really hope (laughs) the women I work with enjoy the process as well. That's also really important for me. So yeah, that's where we're at so far. I love working with women. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, yeah, we, 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 uh, in in movies and stuff, they like, they like to make women like comedy enemies or catty or something, but I love working with women yeah me too well listeners i hope this has piqued your interest not just for zoe's work but for continuing with this podcast so stay tuned next week when we're going to be doing the first half of our roundtable with marguerite donnellan brasheen whelan and sarah reynolds okay closing credits Thank you to all our interviewees for this episode. Check out the show notes for details of their work and links to any references we used. This Mover Shakers Makers miniseries has been supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gale Talk, Sport and Media. It has also been a makeshift company production. Find them on Instagram at Makeshift Company or the website www.makeshiftcompany.com. For more about Zoe and her work on Instagram, go to at Zoe Ash Brown underscore Dance Collective. That's Brown with an E on the end. Or check out her website, zoeashbrown.com. Thanks to Zachary Ministo for all the music in this and other series. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're using, especially if you say nice stuff. And now, from the cutting room floor, I give you... So we need to give a little bit of context here. A snapshot of... A snapshot. A snapshot? (laughs) We need a snapshot. Wow. Wow, that was a lot less work. (laughs) Yeah, right?